If you have a Bible or a phone, go to the gospel reading that we just read from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. What we've just heard is known as the prologue to John's gospel. You see, like the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John offers a biographical portrait of Jesus Christ. Like the other gospels, John is an investigative reporter. His gospel doesn't just pull ideas about Jesus out of the ether. This is historical writing. And he plays by the rules of ancient historical biographical writing. We're looking at the beginning of a biography of Jesus Christ. Now, how might John have gone about this? He might have said, like Luke, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. He might have begun, in other words, with Joseph and Mary en route to Bethlehem. But John doesn't go to Bethlehem. He starts, like many good stories do, in the beginning. So finish, finish my sentence for me. In the beginning... Yeah, you're all mixed up, aren't you? That's the, that's the point. John goes back to the very opening words of Scripture. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And John says, in the beginning was the Word, the one through whom God spoke all creation into being, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John begins his biography of Jesus just a little bit earlier than Luke does, in eternity, claiming that Jesus is God's word, God's wisdom. John is claiming for Jesus what the personified character of wisdom says in Proverbs chapter 8, that when God established the heavens, his word, his wisdom was there. Now, this idea of the word, the logos, was nothing new. Lots of people at John's time knew of this idea. It was a loaded concept. For Jews, the the word was the wisdom of God. For pagan philosophers like the Stoics, on the other hand, the word or logos was this rational principle underlying and animating all reality. John then is using an old concept that everybody is using just in different ways. What he's doing, though, is altogether new. What's new is what John says about the word. Against the pagan philosophers, John says that the logos, the word, is not a a disembodied rational principle. It's a person. You can meet him. You can touch him. But John's also challenging the ideas of the Jews. An ancient Jewish text called First Enoch, written a couple of centuries earlier, had said that the wisdom of God came down to humanity. But wisdom found no place to dwell on earth. So, the text, this First Enoch text says, so wisdom settled permanently among the angels. 
Well, John also says that God's word or wisdom was despised by the world and even by his own people. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own stuff, his own dominion, the stuff he had created, and his own people did not receive him. But John offers a radically different ending to the story. For the word doesn't then throw up his hands and return to heaven, shaking off the dust from his feet. No, as Eugene Peterson puts verse 14, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The word's response to being rejected is not to make a break for the heavenly places. No. It's to move into the neighborhood. And everything that follows in John's gospel revolves around how God defies our expectations of what he will do when the world spits in his face and rejects him. He will not withdraw. He will not abandon. He will not forsake. He will move into the neighborhood. And as John holds up this picture of God's lavish unexpected grace. He calls disciples to bear witness by imitating their incarnate Lord. That's the theme of John's gospel. When you get to chapter 20, verse 30, that's John's mission statement. I've written all this stuff so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that believing in him, you might have faith in his name. And look at all the witnesses that we encounter here. You've got John the Baptist who came to bear witness. You've got the apostles. John is saying, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. You've got Moses and by extension the prophets. We're being called to bear witness by imitating our incarnate Lord. Disciples do not seek unencumbered bliss Disciples move into the neighborhood. That's what John is setting us up for. Let me give you two examples of what it means to move into the neighborhood in the way that John's talking about. First example is Jesus himself. There's a poem. uh, If you get nervous about poetry, don't worry. But um, if you like it, you'll like it. There's a poem by the 17th century poet John Donne that I return to every year at this time. It's called Annunciation. The Annunciation is the angel's great announcement to Mary that she is to bear the Messiah. Well, at the end of the poem, there is a couplet that encapsulates what it means to be a disciple who moves into the neighborhood. The poet says to the Virgin Mary, as she's contemplating what it means to conceive the Son of God. Thou hast light in dark and shutst in little room immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. And with those two words, immensity cloistered, the poem is making this shocking claim about the identity of the God who made us. The one who stood under no obligation to conceive of us or to create us, and who, when we had fallen into sin and death, was bound by no obligation to redeem us, 
humbled himself by humaning himself. He gave up his perfect freedom for constraint. He undertook an obligation that he had no need to undertake. He entered the cloister, not only of Mary's womb, but of human life. And he became like us, encumbered with all these obligations and constraints that we'd really not rather have to deal with. And you know all about this because you've just spent several days with your family, haven't you? (laughs) You didn't choose your family members. And some of them might not necessarily choose you. But in families, obligation trumps option. Our culture, however, runs in the opposite direction. For us, option must always trump obligation. There's an Orthodox theologian called David Bentley Hart, and he puts it this way. For us, it is choice itself and not what we choose that is the first good. Or as that other great theologian Mick Jagger put it, I'm free to do what I want any old time. At all costs, I've I've got to protect my options. I've got to avoid obligations, right? I've got to be the one who's appreciated but never expected. But the incarnation, the, the word or son of God taking on flesh, shows us that the path to true humanity in Jesus is the true human. Shows us that the path to true humanity leads into a neighborhood where neighbors can borrow my books and never return them, where they can ransack my pantry and eat all my food, where they can disrupt my schedule. The incarnation shows us that the path to true humanity doesn't just accept the possibilities of all these different obligations. It actively seeks them out. But we'd be foolish to overlook the character in the Annunciation, in this scene, who most directly parallels us as disciples of the Word, and that's the Virgin Mary. Mary, too, moves into the neighborhood. Mary, too, enters the cloister. Mary strikes me as a heroic model for the Christian life. Pregnancy, I don't know if you're aware of this, is no walk in the park. Mary, Mary consents to the angelic announcement. She gives up herself to be inhabited. She commits herself to become pregnant and to all the things that that entails, to feel distorted and misshapen, and even, as mothers, I'm told, sometimes feel sacrificed. Mary offers herself as a person that the Lord can use, and she does it joyfully. My soul magnifies the Lord. The 20th century poet W.H. Auden puts Mary's response to the news so beautifully. Here's how Mary responds. My flesh in terror and fire, rejoices that the word who utters the world out of nothing, as a pledge of his word to love her, the world, against her will, and to turn her desperate longing to love, should ask to wear me from now to their wedding day for an engagement ring. Mary 
is a disciple. She gets what the word is doing and she's willing to give up her options. Like her son, she enters the cloister. Like her son, she moves into the neighborhood. Like her son, she prefers the humility of obligation to unencumbered bliss. And as a result, Mary's body becomes the engagement ring, Auden says, which Jesus Christ offers to his bride. Mary becomes a pledge of Jesus' love for the world. And that's the job of every disciple. To move into the neighborhood and to be there in your place, at your moment, with your people. To be a pledge of the love of God for the world. An engagement ring that points forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look, this is a brief sermon, okay? And what I want to say to you is this. The path to Christian maturity often leads to places you would rather not go. The way of life is not a quest to attain something better. It's a quest to give something up. The Christian life is not the hunt for the Holy Grail. It's more like Frodo and Sam's journey to the cracks of Mount Doom. It's a journey where at great cost to ourselves, we yield what we're tempted to cling to or to use for our own purposes. And it comes with a cost, doesn't it? Bearing the ring in a real sense required Frodo's life. Following Jesus requires yours and mine. But a great promise comes with this. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made Him known. John closes his prologue by introducing a theme that's going to dominate his whole gospel account. The relationship between the Father and the Son. It's interesting. Trinitarian theology is difficult not because it's a puzzle about how three can be one. Trinitarian theology is a mystery because it looks at the relationship between the Father and the Son. And that's a mystery, John says, Jesus opens to us so that we might participate in it and share through Jesus in the life of the triune God. John holds up before us the relationship between the Father and the Son. And he does so by introducing Jesus. He says, the Word, the the wisdom, the Logos, this principle that animates and organizes all of reality. It's not a formula. It's a person. And we've seen him. I spoke with him this morning. He is the word enfleshed. 
He is the only son who has from eternity enjoyed perfect security and fellowship and love and adoration and belonging in the presence of the Father. Now some of your translations, if you're following along, say that the son in verse 18 is at the Father's side. A better way to put that is in the bosom of the Father. There's a little footnote there if you've got an ESV like I do that gives you that option. It's a picture that we meet again in John chapter 13, verse 23, when the author of the gospel, the beloved disciple, rests his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. It's a position of perfect rest in intimacy and peace and love and security. And the gospel author is saying, this is what we know. This is what the Son invites us into. As the Son knows the Father by nature, He enables us to know the Father by grace. To rest, to rest our heads on His bosom. To know that love and security. Now here's the promise. Because in Jesus Christ, God has moved into the neighborhood to be born and buried, cloistered and killed. We are no longer servants, but heirs, sons and daughters who have been born of God and who have the gift of the spirit of the son of God crying out in our hearts, Abba, Father. That's what Russ was reading to us about. We're no longer slaves but sons and daughters were heirs who know the one who perfectly reveals the image of the Father. Doesn't it feel outstandingly brazen and proud and arrogant to say that you know the ultimate reality, that you know the heart of reality, that you have encountered it and you know that it's a him. And that he knows your name. Can you say that with a straight face to your family or your neighbors? It's what John tells us. Now I hope you're beginning to see why I started by giving choice such a hard time. For us, choice is the idol of our culture. It's the trap door that we think we need to survive. You know the logic. At all costs, don't be confined. Keep your options open. Sign a prenup. Lean into whatever you're doing, but not so much so that others start to let you shoulder more than your fair share of the burden. Just be the one who might, never the one who must. The one who could, never the one who will. The one who's, like I said before, appreciated, but not expected. But Jesus, who perfectly images the Father, says otherwise. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it's not merely that God took on flesh and bone and guts and blood and sinew. The incarnation involves more than God coming and experiencing dandruff and acne and body odor, and kidney stones. Although it's not less than that. The mystery of the incarnation is that the creator became a creature. 
and he became the first creature ever to become perfectly at home in his creatureliness. And this mystery lies at the center of our faith. This is the moment that the whole biblical story has been tiptoeing towards since the beginning. When the Word became flesh, the eternal Creator assumed creaturely nature. He became the first creature ever to feel at home in His creatureliness with obligation over option. Christmas celebrates the Creator surrendering all His trapdoors. It calls us to adore the One who out of His pure grace has chosen to draw us into the life of His perfect eternal bliss as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He doesn't need you or me. He didn't need to create you or me. But He did. And Christmas calls us to imitate the one who moved into the neighborhood. And that's what I'd like you to go away and do. I want you to return to your families and to your homes and to our city thinking this way. I want you to begin to ask whether you're keying off of John, Mary, Christ, or whether your prophet is Mick Jagger. The path to true humanity leads into our neighborhoods where we imitate the one who took on flesh and blood and came to live among us so that not just we, but our neighbors too might say, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray.